You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Joseph Bish is Director of Issue Advocacy for Population Media Center. As an expert on population, family planning, and other global sustainability issues related to PMC's mission, Joe ensures marketing and communication initiatives include effective and focused advocacy messaging. Joe holds a Master of Science in Environmental Advocacy and Organizing from Antioch University in New England. We start today with some background on the work that Population Media Center does around the world. So Population Media Center uh, is a nonprofit charity. We were founded in 1998, and uh, we're based in Vermont, um, which is unusual for an internationally operating nonprofit, but um, we love it in South Burlington. And our organizational vision is a sustainable planet with equal rights for all. So we're firmly in the global sustainability uh, sphere, that sort of movement that um, intellectual mode of inquiry, if you will. Um, But we have real programs on the ground. So our mission is to use entertainment education and mass media to promote uh, social and cultural change. And we do so by addressing what we feel are the interconnected issues of the full rights of women and girls, uh, population dynamics, population size and growth, and the environment. So we feel those are all interconnected issues. And our goals are really to empower people to live healthier and more prosperous lives and to stabilize global population at a level at which humanity, our fellow people, can live sustainably with the world's renewable resources. So we have a reproducible formula for creating entertaining shows uh, that works across people, places, media, and environments. And, you know, we're able to um, impact a lot of social health and environmental challenges with our shows. Um, We engage audiences, change ideas, and really, as I said, try to empower people to make better informed decisions about how they're going to live their life. And that's all sort of framed within this urge towards global sustainability. What, what's that number look like? Do you guys have a number? What, what, uh, what's the figure for sustainability? How do you even come up with something like that? Some people just knee jerks like me. I just knee jerk and say, I think 2 billion sounds nice. I don't know, but (laughs) do you guys actually have a formula and, and guidance on that? Well, it's a good question, and it does really boil down to philosophy at this point, because as you and your listeners likely know, we're at 7.8 billion and counting, adding about 1.5 million people net growth every week. So in some senses, the question of what is an ultimately sustainable number is at best philosophical, but we do know that our current situation is indeed unsustainable. So the first things first, uh, we need to slow down and stop population growth as soon as possible and then welcome in an era of natural decrease. And in terms of the ideal number, you know, I think though many people bring a lot of 
calculations and serious thinking to their efforts to project a, a, a number, ultimately they're all pretty much like you. Uh, nobody knows because it's such a confounded and complex, some would say a wicked problem to figure out that um, ideal number that it's you know practically impossible. But uh, I am a similar to you. Uh, I realize that many people gravitate around the number 2 billion uh, as a population size that might promote maximum biodiversity and global sustainability. Um, but, you know, it's vexed. Population size sets the scale of human impact, but it's not the sole determinant of the human relationship with the planet. Um, as yeah. I think everyone understands, um, other animals' impact is generally limited by their appetites, but humans have discretionary environmental impacts that are far and above our basic biological needs. Um, often this is sort of lumped under the idea of consumption, um, but you know that includes an enormous number of resource extract, extraction, production, consumptive decisions that occur all around the world at this huge, enormous scale of 7.8 billion people. So I guess what I'm saying is, uh, you know, we're in a in a state where population growth is still very much rapid, still much, very much huge. It's nice to think about and pontificate around an ideal sustainable number, but you know, the front, the clear and present problem is to get population slowed down and stopped. So that's what I would say to that. That is a really great answer. That's one of the best answers I've ever heard uh on on population and i'm i'm wondering i i i see on your about page some figures here and i, I wonder where they're derived from um and and it says uh, an estimated 44 percent of births worldwide are unplanned and 22 percent are unwanted i think i've discovered the solution to the whole thing in your about page if we only dealt with just that and i guess that's really the mission of your organization right i mean that is, if you dealt with both of those numbers, uh, we wouldn't have to talk about right away, like you say, we don't have to talk about what our ideal number might be uh, in a global population, because um, that dealing with that problem right there, the 40% unplanned and 22% unwanted, would tell us an awful lot about how far down the population could go. <laughs> I mean, what, yeah. what kind of an effect could that have? And is that really the tip of the spear for your organization, those kinds of numbers and, and unplanned and unwanted pregnancies? Uh, they certainly constitute part of the uh, spear. And yes, um, there's been uh, several studies uh, that have tried to quantify the effect of simply um, getting rid of unwanted and unplanned pregnancies. Um, though some unplanned pregnancies are wanted, there's that caveat. But in general, your point is well taken. And I think... I'm thinking of an um, article by Bob Engelman, who is a scholar in this uh, sustainable population movement. And I, I believe that he basically found if we could take care of um, unwanted pregnancies, um, you know, we'd basically quickly move towards zero population growth uh, scenario. There are also other aspects of what is driving um, population growth. You know, unwanted, unplanned pregnancies are definitely a symptom of them. 
Um, but there's also uh, remaining pockets of high desired fertility around the world. Um, so ideal family size um, that's still elevated um, in, in many different places around the world. Um, there's bias against contraception. Um, usually this bias is based on rumors, myths, misinformation, and the persistently low status of women that cuts across both culture and time around the world. And then also, uh, it's worth pointing out, population momentum, which is a phenomena of even when uh, replacement level fertility is reached, uh, replacement level fertility is the average number of children a woman would have over her lifetime to replace the previous generation. In general, that's about 2.1 children per woman. Even when that scenario is attained, when you when your population pyramid has a very large base, so a youthful uh, population age structure, population will continue to grow even in a um, replacement level uh, fertility scenario just because there's so many uh, individuals coming into their reproductive years that um, you still get population growth even though the fertility rate is at replacement level. So, yes, I agree with you that unwanted, unplanned pregnancies would certainly help curtail uh, population growth, but there's also these other factors that um, need to and can be dealt with. I wanted it to be a simple solution. Also, I, I wanted know, to get some sort of an award for discovering that solution today on the show just by looking at your about page. But okay, uh, it's a little here. more complicated than that. Yeah. <laughs> The fact that we're even talking about it, it's it's such a taboo topic. And I'm I'm becoming aware as I read more and more of your material and other and others. Um, over the last couple of years, I've become a lot more aware of the more in-depth part of the population issue debate. And that is most people who have a knee-jerk reaction to it and call, you know, they do the weird stuff. They talk about racism, they talk about all the other things, to, and and they really just want to shut down the conversation. And now I know why. It's because they don't know what they're talking about. They literally have no clue how to talk about population in the way that you just did. That you can't have that conversation with most people who do the shutting down conversation kind of thing. Like um, either from that myth thing or the religious stuff, or I guess that's redundant. You know, whatever they're using, they're trying to make a conversation they're not prepared to have go away is what I'm starting to realize, because you guys really bring it. When you bring the facts about this, um, the humane and ethical way that you talk about it, um, you know, it's none of the boogeyman type stuff. And that's why I like having people like you on the show to demonstrate that. Does that mm -hmm. still frustrate you guys, or have you gotten over it? Good question. I mean, I think that it's an ongoing frustration that we've learned to just... <laughs> mitigate within ourselves and our emotional approach to our work. Um, you know, it's a very polarizing topic. I think it would be safe to say you described a low information interlocutor. It's just never going to go away. Population has been a controversial issue for two centuries now. And no matter how eloquently we describe our motivations or how eloquently we lay out the win-win scenarios of getting into the complexities of this issue and actually doing um, work on the ground around the world and how it can improve people's lives in the immediate term, but also have these larger systemic uh, positive effects. There's just always going to be a resistance to that through a whole bevy of reasons. Some of it is low information. Some of it is the ideological opposition that comes both from the far right and the far left. 
Um, some of it is this sort of anthropocentric human exceptionalism that just values human life over all other species. Um, so even within the uh, you know opposition that we face, at least we've got sophisticated enough to be able to segment that opposition, understand where it's coming from, which makes it a lot less painful, and we can deal with it more effectively. Does the problem somewhat go away without having to pound the population thing right on the head? If you're just doing what you guys are doing and, and showing people alternatives, that they don't have to listen to their grandmas and aunts, um, that there is another way to live, a whole different way, and the pressure can kind of be taken off for having kids they, they don't even know they don't want right now. Yeah, I see where your question is going. And yes, I think to some extent it, it does. Um, you know, uh, the, the population growth uh, issue is has all these different factors going into it. And so one way that you may um, address population uh, is by increasing women's empowerment um, and gender equity around the world. Um, you may be promoting the rights of little girls to go to primary and secondary schools. Um, you might be working against domestic violence, female genital mutilation, uh, early enforced marriage. Uh, you might be uh, working on child health so that um, you know infant mortality goes down. There's a lot of different factors that you know all funnel up into this meta measure of population size and growth. Um, and so you need not always be uh, harping on the population issue per se uh, because that's actually an oversimplification of, of the problem. Um, but that's not to say either that, you know, encouraging small ideal family sizes, um, trying to uh, empower um, women and couples to be able to use modern contraception without fear of uh, getting cancer or other, you know, outrageous myths and misinformation that circulate uh, is not a good thing too. And those are more directly tied to the population um, growth issue per se. But, uh, you know, I take your point and that, that it need not always be an explicit population advocacy stance that a population activist might take. It could take a lot of different forms. And what's sort of important to remember on, on those other issues is that those other issues are already prima facie um, standalone goods, I guess, a priori standalone goods. So it is welcome that gender equity and women's empowerment do have a systemic effect on population. In some senses, you can argue it's also subservient because just as a moral and ethical perspective on the world, you know, at least population media centers and organization believes that, you know, women and men are equal. And so I don't know if that makes sense, but it's that you are doing good because it's good to do good. And then oh, lo and behold, you're actually doing great because by doing good, you're also having these larger impacts on human population size and the growth, which then, you know, has environmental and social uh, ramifications, development ramifications um, all around the world. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. 
when you visit populationmedia.org, there are a lot of things to do here. This is actually quite a much, much bigger organization also than I was imagining when I was coming to visit. When you scroll to the very bottom and it, and, it and, and you take a look at all the links to all the countries where your programming shows up, it's it's massive. I mean, you're all over the place and you're doing stuff in so many different countries. Is it safe to say that you're you you were the first in a lot of these places to have these messages going out this this programming which you'll describe uh, next what what kinds of programming you have and and in some cases are you the only voice in some of the you have to be in some of these places where you're kind of providing a relief valve of information people weren't going to get any other way. I can't speak to whether that we were the first in some of these places um, in general, though I, you know, I don't know why I would say this, but maybe it would be nice to be the only voice uh, on these issues. But in general, usually there are uh, a lot of other good people trying to do good work um, all over the world in these countries and other ones. So I won't claim any sort of, uh, you know, dominion over them. Obviously, uh, in terms of the airwaves, I think we have a lot of good uh, competition on the airwaves. Um, but, you know, we're an entertainment first organization. So we're about telling stories um, and getting people involved in these stories because they like how the drama unfolds. You know, no one goes home after long days of work to listen to a PSA. They go home to be entertained. But, you know, to answer your question uh, at a different level as well, um, entertainment education and its modern incarnation, of course, people have been using stories to change behavior since, you know, the, the dawn of human history. But in the modern era with modern technologies, um, you know, the discipline of entertainment education really began in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and, you know, in some form or another, um, it's been happening sort of ever since. We, as I said, we were founded in 1998 by uh, Bill Ryerson. Um, some of your listeners probably are familiar with Bill's work. He's you know, dedicated his life to the population issue and reproductive health. He had come from um, PCI Media Impact, which is still a going concern and does similar work to ours. Um, and PCI Media Impact grew out of the Population Institute, um, who's still a partner organization to PMC. They're based in Washington, D.C., and that was back in the 70s. So, you know, we have a long history uh, as an organization and sort of our approach to programming has an even longer history that's sort of tried and true. And yeah, that's why we've worked in more than 40 countries and reached over, you know, 500 million people uh, since 1998. You talked about a formula before um, that's tried and true. Um, what's that like? I mean, how do you work in the messaging in in the entertainment that's produced? Our programs are fairly complex behavioral interventions. Uh, you know, after 50 years, it's a fairly highly evolved communications technique that's constructed from a lot of scientifically validated communication, psychosocial and psychological theories, and we happen to deliver our stories via long-running episodic dramatic entertainment, usually between one and three years of broadcast. And I would say, you know, in layman's terms, it really boils down to role modeling. 
Um, Albert Bandura, who's the, I believe, the third most cited psychologist of all time, uh, came up with this idea called social learning theory. And that boils down to the fact that it's much easier to learn vicariously than it is to take risks yourself. So most of human behavior is learned by, through the observation of others doing things and seeing what happens to them. That is basically what our dramatic stories are based on as role models. Um, we have positive, negative, and transitional characters for each uh, issue that we're addressing in any of our shows. Usually we try to address about four issues per show. It might be family planning, reproductive health, women's empowerment, uh, and child marriage, for example. So for each one of those story strands, we have these three characters. A positive role model, a negative role model, and transitional character, um, which are designed to most closely uh, represent the average people in the society, um, uniquely designed to uh, strongly resonate with, with the beneficiary audience um, so that the audience forms emotional bonds with them, even to the point of love and affection. This is known as parasocial interaction. And this um, connection, these emotional bonds, really allows these fictional characters to be presented as actual behavioral role models for the audience. And what we do through this sort of facility of the interaction of these three characters is to show people different options around different major decisions they might be taking uh, in their life. Um, and then we send them on a transitional character journey. And this may be getting in the weeds a little bit, but you know, uh, similar to the hero's journey um, that you may have heard of if you ever studied mm -hmm. uh, theatrics or movie making, the hero's journey is very similar. The transitional character goes on this journey through the context of the fiction. They reach a intractable situation that requires them to make a decision. Um, perhaps um, using modern contraception or not. And the uh, negative character will attempt to influence that decision, and the positive character will attempt to influence that decision. In those attempts, the audience gets perspective on those two unique perspectives, and the transitional character makes that fictional decision to do one or the other. History happens, the story goes on, they come to another intractable situation where they have to make a, a similar decision. The same thing happens two or three times over the course of the drama until a climax occurs and the transitional character is changed around the issue being addressed um, and becomes an advocate for that new behavior within the context of the show. So over the 50-year history of this discipline, um, our monitoring and evaluation and other organizations who do similar work has found, lo and behold, this actually makes a difference in how people perceive the world. It can change their attitude. It can change their knowledge. It can change their actual behavior. Um, and then where PMC is trying to go then is to create this um, threshold of behavior where social norms actually begin to change. So through multiple shows and countries, uh, including the United States and all over the world, we try to move the needle to the point where social norms actually begin to change. In the context of our conversation, maybe that would be ideal family size going down in some of the uh, remaining high fertility countries. But there's so much more than that. You know, they're good good acting, their good production value, their exciting stories, our, you know, our writers, how do they bring these characters to life? 
And I should mention too that um, PMC always partners with the top local talent in in the um, country or community where we're working. Um, so we always use all local scriptwriters, all local actors, program managers, etc. They're the ones that really carry out the projects. Um, and has the local ownership um, for the ultimate message that's going on on the airwaves. Well, for anyone who's listening who thinks that this is, you know, if, if, if the engineered part of this sounds a little bit weird to you, uh, note that every bit of programming outside of what PMC does is designed exactly the same way. We've all been taught from a very young age through the airwaves uh, what to consume, how to act, what our culture is, our religion and everything else. It's all been done already. You guys haven't broken any new ground in that area. You just realized what works <laughs> and, and, and put it to a different cause, formerly or in conjunction, in tandem with this, and it's happening right now. Just turn on a TV and you'll find engineering happening. Um, people wanting to get you to, I mean, they didn't call them soap operas for nothing. They were just designed to sell soap. That's what those are. They're stories to sell soap, <laughs> laundry detergent. And so I, I, I hope people understand that that's really how we've gotten to this point today. In fact, it was used to help Get the population to the size that it is today. All the baby stuff, all the commercials, all of it making people feel like, oh, yeah, I can have a kid. This is great. And I'm supposed to. Culturally, I'm expected to. And that that was all programming. That was all programming through entertainment. You thought you were just being entertained. But lo and behold, now you got twins. Well, I think you're right. And I think that, you know everyone has a formula for what they do. Um, I mentioned the hero's journey earlier. I mean, people go and get bachelors, masters, and probably doctorates of fiction writing because there's a way to write good fiction. It's quite interesting, actually, because, um, you know, with the local ownership of the stories and our commitment not to lecture or tell people what to do, we really are providing people behavioral options they may not have been aware of before some people may have never it may have never occurred to a, a woman in a domestically violent situation that she doesn't have to put up with that you know it may have never occurred to someone in a conservative society that they can file div divorce if they want to and that's within their you know right to do so they have met, may never have occurred to someone that actually god did not be decide at the beginning of the universe how many children they were going to have and therefore it made no difference whether they use contraception or not. You know, they may have realized, oh, actually, I can control my family size. You know, we're committed to global sustainability, so we want to liberate people's perceptions of their own autonomy as much as possible. And that's really what this quote-unquote formula does. Well, this is Rewilding Earth, and, and uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about um, more direct directly the conservation stuff and you guys um you guys hit that too in your messaging you talk about biodiversity and 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 conservation related issues can you talk a little bit uh more about that i mean is, is that is that a goal that you try to hit no we wouldn't be um we wouldn't be able to operate if we were the um ideologically pure um you know there's two ways that we get towards the global diverse di biodiversity issue and sort of global sustainability the contributions we make to that cause um one indeed is through um you know trying to um 
create the conditions for slower and ultimately the end of population growth. So we do that largely through the status of women and girls and fighting the mis misinformation around contraception. And these have population effects. Uh, population, uh, the end of population growth will obviously have environmental benefits and a decrease in population will have other environmental uh, benefits as well. The other way that we also address the environmental issue is actually by taking um, parts of that and putting them in shows. So, uh, for example, we had a reforestation storyline in one of our programs in Rwanda. We've had gorilla habitat conservation. We've had sustainable fishing. So actual specific storylines around human behavior on some environmental issues. So we approach that in sort of two ways, the systemic bigger picture way um, by, you know, getting into the population issue and then through specific behavioral things around environment. It looks really cool. There's some things on here that I feel like I want to see, but I have to check to see what's in my country. And you guys are working in... Um... In the United States, you have projects, but you have, like you said, was it around 40 countries um, that you're in? Yeah, historically, yeah. I think we're active in uh, about 11 countries right now. I'd have to go check for sure, but that's a good estimate. Tell me a little bit more about how you guys measure your success in terms of, you mentioned earlier, you, you've seen the results of what you do. What does that mean? How, how do you quantify these things? Sure. So um, <clears throat> our monitoring and evaluation uh, is based on uh, issue-related baseline research, so um, around knowledge, attitudes, and behaviors on issue-specific um, things that we're going to address in our show, and then also quantitative and qualitative um, post-broadcast endline research to measure the changes in attitudes, knowledge, and behaviors relative to those issues. Uh, we can also document um, changes in demand for health services in conjunction with the program. So there may be a reproductive health clinic. Uh, we may send uh, monitors there, uh, interview people, what motivated them to come in. Um, was it a radio show? If it was a radio show, if we're doing a radio show, what was the name of it? Um, that sort of thing. Uh, we also can solicit feedback from um, consumers of our entertainment via letters or text messages. Um, and that sort of thing. And when applicable, if we have a social media aspect to a program, of course, we can monitor the social media as well. Um, but I mean, I think the takeaway is that we do a rigorous uh, baseline and inline research. Um, and you can find a lot of that on our website on a per show basis. There's a pandemic going on. Yeah. And I've just I've just been talking to my colleagues and, and we just go back and forth about what what could change during this? Because people are they're having a break like no other in the United States and mm -hmm. and they're uh, consuming a lot more programming, reading a lot more, doing all kinds of things in uh, in quarantine and uh, complaining mightily sometimes about it. But nonetheless, uh, they're open to a lot more programming and, and reading and things that um, they formerly couldn't. Um, really consume. And we also, I kind of reflect on what kinds of change could, could be happening here when people come out the other side, because it's a really big scare. It's a really big, it's a, it's something that people can't really, uh, I know, I know they're trying, but, uh, I don't know how everybody could avoid being affected by this and, and really absorbing something on a deeper level than they would if it was just happening while they were still allowed to work and, and, um, 
distract themselves in the, all the ways that we do. Do you think much about that? Like what's going on right now and how it might affect people's attitudes toward things? I know that you guys must be reaching a lot more people right about now, especially because quarantine is pretty much happening all over the country. And so, I mean, all over the world in so many countries. Yes, indeed. So, you know, it's not clear exactly what is going to unfold in all around the world. I and mean, we have our own experiences here in the United States. Um, currently, uh, in terms of what PMC as an organization is doing, you know, we're working hard with our partners to uh, get COVID-19 messaging into either our shows or the epilogues to try to promote public health um, where we're already on the air. Why not? Um, mm -hmm. It makes sense. Um, and then I guess more philosophically, you know, my perception is COVID-19 reminds me of one of those um, science fiction, maybe something like Star Wars or when something just gets blown up and it's like a theatrical effect is to silence all the sound for just a split second before the big boom comes. And mm -hmm. I kind of feel like that's where we are as a society right now. We're actually still in that silence phase and what the boom is going to be. Nobody knows. But I'm, you know, wondering to what extent fundamental assumptions, some might say fundamental delusions of the modern socioeconomic structure um, are going to be exposed. For example, the sort of jerry-rigged need for infinite growth on a finite planet. It's quite possible that coming out of this prosperity and actual human health um, as an aspect of planetary health may be seen as the primary attainable value of society's efforts here going forward um, instead of marginal increases in quarter quarterly profitability. Um, maybe I'm just deluded myself, <laughs> but I mean, no, that I, seems that's like why I asked the question. That's why I asked because I, I feel like you do too. I always follow it up with that. Maybe I'm just being too optimistic or, but I still have faith. I mean, anybody who has anybody who works in organizations like ours obviously still have faith because otherwise, what's the point? You can't True. cynically do this and you certainly can't succeed at your mission if you're cynical that, to that extent about it. So but I also do that. I'm like, ah, I don't know. Are people just going to be the same when they get out of this? Or is this an opportunity for humanity itself to just look at itself a little bit more, be a little bit more reflective and. And uh, who knows, on any number of fronts, on any number of issues, how, what effect this might have. Well, I do think that there will be a renewed interest in health infrastructure and health-related education, uh, which hopefully might include sex and sexuality education. Um, I'm also hopeful that perhaps emotional intelligence will be seen as more important than industrial skills acquisition. And, you know, I certainly believe that a well-rounded emotional intelligence will, as a matter of course, include empathy and fraternal camaraderie for the rights of other species to exist and prosper. So, you know, along the, the premises of, a, of what I understand rewilding is to is based upon, um, you know, this could be an opportunity to systemically change the outlook of humanity around the, the single finite um, planet that we have here. Um, and, you know, that's my power, you know, that's my positive thinking. Um, up until this pandemic, uh, I used to say, you know, if you're optimistic, you must be a fool, but we can't dispense with, you know, the power of positive thinking. And I, I think that kind of holds true to a certain extent 
uh, even now. Um, like you said, if, if we didn't think there was any hope at all, we wouldn't go to work in the morning. Um, but there is hope, and that can be seen exactly in what's happened in the past couple of weeks. Um, rather amazingly, humanity has done a, a total about-face um, even here in, in the United States. Um, things are much different than they were two weeks ago in unthinkable ways. So this shows the dexterity that humanity has when they have no other choice. <laughs> Another thing I will say, however, is as viral and threatening and awe-inspiring in a negative way that this pandemic is in another way it has not stopped the world from turning um you know a lot of the inputs to global sustainability or the lack thereof that were here three or four weeks ago are still here you know we i think since they've i read that the first uh case was identified in late november in wuhan and since that moment in time 27 million people net growth have been added to the planet um, that's the number of people who currently live in texas um, and we will grow by about 75 million people this year um, and that's COVID isn't going to change that to any significant degree um, you know the status of women around the world in many societies is still appalling um, so they can't make decisions about their own health care uh, they can't provide for their families. They can't attain the number of children they actually want, but they're subjected to patriarchal traditions of large families. Um, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone to know that our carbon emissions are escalating every year and have been since the first measurements were taken in the middle of Pacific Ocean 40 years ago or whatever it was. Um, we know that we're in the midst of the sixth great mass extinction. This is not naturally occurring. It's actually an extermination event. So uh, as awful as COVID is, um, the premises about that PMC was founded on and that rewilding was founded on and many other like-minded organizations are still clear and present dangers that, um, you know, when need to be addressed now and going forward, um, we wish the best for everyone with COVID-19. You know, we, we hope for as fewest as unnecessary deaths as possible. Um, and as I said, we're doing our part on the programs we have on the air already to try to get messaging out there. But as much as the world has changed, some of these bigger meta um, challenges are still front and center. Well, Joe, I really, really want to go on for another two hours. I really, really do. So we'll just have to have you back. But thank you so, okay. so much for taking the time for being on Rewilding Earth today. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure. Um, and yeah, happy to be back at any time. And um, good luck to everybody, you know, at this challenging time. And let's put our best foot forward and, and see where that takes us. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.